You're listening to The Middle, the show about the Australia-China connection. We're bringing greater balance and broad expertise to all aspects of the Australia-China relationship. Welcome to The Middle, the show where China and Australia talks and listens with a bit of help from their friends. We are coming to you from two SDR studios in the heart of Sydney on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. My name is Peter Frey, the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition, and joining me today is my co-presenter and esteemed colleague from the University of Technology, Sydney, Wanning Sun. Hello, Wanning. How are you today? Pretty good today, Peter. Um, Peter, I have a question for you to start with. Why do we decide to call this show The Middle? Well, I'm so pleased you asked, uh, Wanning. Uh, there are four important reasons for this. Uh, one, Australia is increasingly caught in the middle between the US and China. Two, China is, of course, the middle kingdom. And three, many people get stuck in the middle of the debate about China and Australia. And we think there is a productive middle path in this often hot and divisive debate. I can think of another reason. Well, really, what's that? Well, if you want to be philosophical about this, we can go with um, Aristotle's uh, doctrine of the golden mean, or we can go with the Confucius idea of the middle way, right? That's very deep, very deep. Well, today's episode is all about history. We're exploring the history of Sino-Australian relations and Chinese migration in Australia over the last 200 years. Joining us on the show today, we have Stephen Fitzgerald, Australia's first ambassador to China, and Daphne Lo Kelly, a community leader and a former president of Chinese Heritage Association. Steve and Daphne, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Perhaps I can jump in with the first question uh, to you, Steve. Uh, when you went to China as the first Australian ambassador, um, what was it like? What was China like? Empty. Empty. <laughs> that seems a strange thing to say about a country which at the time had uh, about 800 million people. Yes. But um, uh, in Beijing, uh, you could really shoot a cannon down the main street and you wouldn't hit anything. Uh, there was no traffic. Um, there was... Uh, Nothing in the way of uh, commercial enterprise, no uh, signs, no colour. So, uh, so where were all the people? The people, uh, they get on the bus uh, or their bicycle to go to work and then they go home again. Uh, but apart from that, you know, you didn't see people. Well, if you went to a park on a, on a festival day or national day or something, like that, of course you'd see a lot of people there or the zoo or something. Right, right. Um, and um, it was also, for foreigners, uh, very difficult uh, to have uh, communication with Chinese people. In fact, it was forbidden right. by um, the Chinese government. Difficult for an ambassador. What year? You're talking about 1973, are we? I, I went in early 73, oh. and I left at the end of 76. Oh. And what was the relationship like between Australia and China then? Uh, well, of course, we were putting it all together again. Um, I have to say that, you know, if we're talking about the history of uh, Australia-China relations, there is a longer history that goes a long way back and many Australians involved uh, in the relationship and many um, Australians of uh, Chinese descent mm -hmm. also. That's a very important part of the prior history. But if we're talking about um, the beginning of relations with the People's Republic of China, um, 
I've said often that it was like, because we'd had no relations for 23 years. So it was like putting uh, a severed limb back together. You had to find all the nerve ends and uh, connect them up. And whether it was people working in the Academy of Science or or officials or, or sports people or whatever, it was um, it was it was challenging. Um, you couldn't do anything like uh, the kind of thing that you could do in China even ten years later. Uh, because they're still in the latter days of uh, Mao's Cultural Revolution. Mm. There's a big internal power struggle going on, and uh, officials felt very inhibited about taking or responding to initiatives. Mm. So that, that was a very interesting metaphor that you used about the limb. Did you ever anticipate a very such a dramatic change in the Australian's political discourses about China? Um, towards the end of, the, of uh, my time in Beijing, um, I wrote uh, a formal uh, dispatch to Canberra uh, in which I said that after Mao dies, um, China will return to uh, a kind of different state which, is, which Chinese people will be more familiar with. Uh, and um, that is, uh, in fact, what happened uh, the politics and the ide ideology uh, was, uh, if not taken away completely, was pulled back and uh, Chinese people were given freedom uh, to, well, later on, Deng Xiaoping said, uh, to become rich. But, but actually, uh, in my view, China is the quintessential materialist society. Mm -hmm. In other words, they never invented a god, a metaphysical god. They imported a couple, but uh, so essentially material, not in a Marxist sense. Mm. And so when Chinese were given the opportunity uh, to earn a living, to spend it how they wanted to, even to make a bit of money, uh, they leapt into it. Mm. And so we kind of anticipated that from the embassy in 76. Mm. We wrote it and everyone laughed. Everyone in camera. Well, they would be laughing now. No. Daphne, let's turn to you. Uh, as a community leader and the former president of the Chinese Heritage Association, you've had a, a very interesting perspective on the struggles and the wins of, of Chinese migrants in Australia over the past you know, two centuries. Not that you are two centuries old, I might add. What would you say, how would you characterize them? The, you know, how would you, what would you say were some of the struggles for the Chinese migrant community in Australia? Well, if you go back to the um, 1800s, and especially during the gold rush period, which was started um, around about 1852, mm -hmm. now Chinese for the first time came in reasonable numbers and they were then fairly visual, right, on the gold fields. Right. And unfortunately, um, they were not um, welcome. Uh, the non-Chinese, especially a whole range of different Europeans, um, were... Um, they were the other, weren't they? They definitely were the others, yeah. because you've got to remember this was still during the Qing dynasty. Mm -hmm. The Chinese looked quite different. The men would still have had their cues or their pigtails. Mm. They didn't speak, majority of them just spoke no English. They ate different foods. They, so they were mm. quite different. And unfortunately, as a result of that, the first um, anti-Chinese legislation 
what, to limit the number of Chinese coming to Australia was enacted in 1855 by the Victorian, the colonial Victorian government. So that's, so from that beginning of where there was a, a, a number of, um, um, and there were attacks also, yes, yes, right, well, on, on the Chinese. So from so there was a very material and physical struggle then around those in those times, right? Yes, yeah. yes, mm. uh, and most of the men, people who came, of course, were men. Mm. There were no Chinese women around mm. that time, mm. but that led on right through that whole period, um, right? Let's say going up to 1901 with Federation, that most of the colonial powers enacted anti-Chinese legislation. It also happened in New South Wales after the so-called Lambing Flat Riots of mm. um, yeah. uh, 1861. Um, and so, and then, of course, what happened? You get federation yeah. and you get the Immigration Restriction Act or the, you know, White Australian yes. Policy. Yes, uh, recently. Now, talking about White Australian Policy, Stephanie, I know that... Uh, uh, New York Times did a story uh, to mark the 200 years of migration, Chinese migration to Australia, and you and your family were actually featured in that story. Uh, a very nice picture. Yeah, a very nice yeah, picture very of nice. you wearing a nice red dress. <laughs> um, I noticed that you were quoted in that story as saying that uh, some you think some of the Chinese uh, people in the Chinese communities uh, were fearing that some of the uh, uh, shades of the white Australian policy are coming back. Do you think these kind of fears um, are justified? Well, I think over the last uh, two years or so, uh, especially with this whole um, foreign influence uh, policy that the current government um, have been pushing, I think starting with um, donations, right, and, uh, you know, Stam Dastiari. Um, so, and it... it a lot of that rhetoric that has been going on does certainly influence um, a lot of people. And there's probably 1.2, maybe to 1.4 million people here uh, in Australia of Chinese descent. Now, those 1.4 million come from a wide background, right, ranging from, you know, descendants of the early Chinese um, right through to, uh, you know, ones who've come from Southeast Asian countries uh, and, of course, to the most recent lot who are now from the People's PRC. Republic of China. Yes. Yeah. So, Steve, in a similar vein, I think you've been doing quite a lot of work with Linda Jacobson at uh, China Matters. And you recently put out a policy brief which uh, argued, in essence, that there is a real problem with the with Australia's China narrative. So maybe you could ex sort of expand on that a bit. What's the problem? And, and dare I ask, how should it be fixed? Um, that's a slightly longer answer. Yes, <laughs> than this show, <laughs> perhaps. But, but anyway. Yeah, um, but uh, just taking up uh, where Daphne left off, I mean, part of the reason uh, for us putting out that uh, paper, this is Linda Jacobson, who yeah, started yeah, yeah, yeah. this thing, yeah. China yeah. Matters, of yep. which I'm uh, the chairman of the board. Um, and uh, was this growing tide of uh, anti-China sentiment mm. in the mainstream English language media, but also being fed by certain agencies of the Commonwealth Government mm. in uh, selective uh, leaks to um, chosen journalists and so on mm. uh, to crank the whole thing up mm. so that it was 
Um, it was about our relations with China uh, and uh, the allegations of uh, China trying to take over Australia and and washing into the whole question of Chinese Australians. So, so is that a domestic so, narrative? Is that do you think in essence? Um, it's uh, it's a mix uh, for the right. politicians. Uh, a lot of it is about uh, the domestic constituency, mm. um, but for those agencies, it's more of an ideological position uh, reflecting the views of their counterparts in Washington mm. uh, about China. So the, the view of these agencies, same agencies in Washington uh, is that China is a threat, and now we see um, virtually uh, declared as the enemy – um, without actually using uh, that term. Uh, and this is reflected in our own intelligence and uh, security agencies. So what Linda and I wrote was to say that the narrative, to, to the extent that there was a narrative about China, uh, and we have to be very clear about this because the governments for some time have never attempted to set out Mm. Uh, a long view of what they think about this change, this enormous giant power that is there in our midst and how over the next 10, 20, 30 years we're going to manage it uh, for better or for worse. Mm. It's there. Mm. Uh, it's so not going away. It's That's not right. going away. So yeah. to the extent that there was a narrative, it was a, an, a dated narrative that um, was very much driven by uh, United States views, mm. containment of China, uh, you could live in that view. You could live with China so long it, uh, as it didn't become too uppity. Yes. But now we have China uh, uppity, mm. as it were. Yep. Uh, and there is no uh, narrative from the government as to how we're going to deal with that. So that's mm. what it's about. So the question of how it should be fixed is really even possibly a, too presumptuous almost because it doesn't seem to be the appetite for a fix. Well, I think uh, Lindra and I have come to the conclusion that uh, we will have to write the narrative. You, you too. Uh, uh, excellent. Uh, okay. we, we, well, not, and a few not, others, but... not entirely on, uh, on our own. But what, what we're saying <laughs> is if, if we do a draft, if we have some brainstorming sessions with people from all over, different views, um, you know, that don't all have to be favorable to China or whatever, um, and from different sectors... Uh, including particularly those who are very engaged with the relationship, and that's, that includes business, but not only business, many civil society yeah. actors, all kinds. That broad uh, debate. Yeah. So, and we we mm. synthesised that into a draft paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I'm talking now about process, yes. uh, not yes, yet yes. about content. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that uh, that draft paper is then put out uh, for discussion. Mm. Uh, for development into something that can be a China narrative, which we would hope um, becomes accepted by government and opposition. So it has to be that good. Yes. You're listening to The Middle, the show that's about exploring relations between China and Australia. Today we're joined in the studio by Australia's first ambassador to China, Stephen Fitzgerald, and Daphne Lokelly, a community leader and former president of the Chinese Heritage Association. Peter. And I might give a quick mention to our esteemed producer, Amy Ma, who's doing a wonderful job putting this wonderful show together. Thanks, Morning. Uh, Daphne, your family history and its relationship to Australia is full of detours and complications. Uh, that's possibly not an unusual 
narrative in one sense. But so your father had to go to New Zealand. Why was that? Well, my first recorded um, relative actually came to Australia. That was my maternal grandfather, my mother's father. Right. He came, and I haven't been able to establish the exact date, but I believe it was in the 1890s. And he then became a market gardener, right, in mm -hmm. the Camden district. Right. However, when my father wanted to come to uh, this part of the world in uh, 1920, of course, the White Australia policy was in place. So what he did was he managed to get a passage to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And New Zealand also did have a dictation test. And act in actual fact, father, on his first, but that dictation test was in English, mm -hmm. unlike here in Australia, where they could give it to you in any European language. So in other words, you were deemed to always fail here. Right. So father, for the first time, didn't pass that test, but he tried again in 1921, and he passed the dictation test, and then there was the problem of a head tax. At that time, it was £100. Wow, a lot of money. A lot of money. Now, father doesn't have that sort of money, but what they used to do was they would, someone from the same county would lend that money, oh, and then father would work it off. So, the, so he ended up in New Zealand, though. So he ends up in New Zealand. I see. Later on, he actually... Um, has an arranged marriage, right, mm -hmm. and marries my mother. Um, who is in? Who is in China. Is in China. She's also from the same district. We come from the district of, in Cantonese, it's Jiangsing, mm -hmm. or in Mandarin, it's Denxian. Uh, they come from different villages, right? My mother comes from a village um, with the surname of Zhong, and they, they're married, and then... What was fairly typical was she then goes to live in with her mother-in-law in, -law in um, father's village, and father goes back to New Zealand, right, to try and earn a living to support the family. What so was your father doing in New Zealand? He um, mainly he he was a salesman, and then he also went into the fruit and vegetable okay. game, yeah. mainly in the retail right yeah, area, okay. right and um, but then father. For the first 10 years of their marriage, they lived apart, right? Mm. But when they had enough, um, when father had enough funds, he would travel back to uh, China. And so on, ov I know obviously on two of these visits, my oldest brother was <laughs> born in one of those visits <laughs> and my older sister, right, was born on another. Um, then 10 years later, mother manages to get to New Zealand. Right. And so five of us New Zealand born Right. Oh, so you're a Kiwi as well as... So I'm a Kiwi, a Kiwi by Australian. birth. Right. Yes. Yeah, so when people ask me where am I from, you know, I, I it, <laughs> yes. it's quite a difficult one. So I normally say I'm a Kiwi by birth, I'm a resident Australian, and I'm Chinese by descent. <laughs> and that story you just related to talks a lot about the richness of the relationship, but also, again, about the struggle, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. this sort of un, often unheard of and undocumented, well, better documented these days, but the struggle to to better themselves, right? Is that what motivated your family, your father? Oh, definitely. Back yeah. then, um, no, our father, he unfortunately lost his father when he was quite young. Mm -hmm. And so even at the age of 13, he went with a village uncle to the island of Sumatra, which was part of the Dutch East Indies back mm. then. Um, that village uncle happened to be a tailor. 
So father worked there for a few years, but because conditions were so primitive, he decided there must be somewhere better to go. So eventually he went back to China, and then at about the age of 19, 18 or 19, he got this passage to right. New Zealand. And the answer was but, New Zealand. Yes, yes. but look, this it, all of those early Chinese struggled, right? It was never easy. Uh, there was, um, you've got to also remember that the majority of them, unlike the ones today, came from the villages. Yes. Mm. And so they were, but a lot of them had had no education, no formal, right, mm. education, but they were all willing to work hard. Mm. And they came from, because they had people and families that they needed to support. And back there, China had lots of internal problems. Yes, yes, yes. okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Steve, I have another question for you. When you were the, uh, being the ambassador China, you predict, didn't you, that one day China was going to become a dominant power in the region. What led you to that conclusion? As I mentioned earlier, um, I think that uh, there's a combination of um, elements in uh, Chinese society uh, that... um, uh, that made it um, very responsive to um, the incentives of uh, materialism. That's part of it. Mm. But a part of it is also the work ethic um, and the extraordinary uh, esteem in which education is held in Chinese society. Um, some people describe uh, this in part as being uh, Confucian, and to an extent that's right, but uh, it's a combination of factors, some of which go all the way back to Confucius. But the um, a few years ago, uh, a scholar by the name of Cam Louis mm. um, uh, wrote uh, a book called Theorizing uh, Chinese Masculinity. Uh, and uh, in which he went back and examined all of the texts that uh, you could find, the histories, and then when you start to get fiction and uh, all of this kind of stuff. And uh, a main conclusion that he came to was that the idea of masculinity, the first quality was to be educated, Ooh. as reflected in throughout this in the written record of China. So, and that is deep uh, in the Chinese psyche, I believe. So you have that, you have the materialism, you have, to some extent, the Confucian idea of order, uh, the, the filial uh, idea, uh, and the mm, discipline, if you like, mm. that goes with that, the, the togetherness of uh, communities, um, and so uh, our view from the embassy, my view was that if you remove uh, all of these artificial layers that have been put on top of uh, Chinese society by communism, by Mao, and I'm not denying that, that the revolution, the communist revolution uh, uh, didn't do some good things. Um, it did. Uh, and we must remember that. But it also did some bad things, mm. some really bad things. Mm. Um, so once you took all of that off, uh, this would release an enormous energy. And so we, we uh, 
forecast that mm. by the turn of the century, mm. China could be having growth rates of uh, 10%, 10%. So when you made that forecast, how did the Australian government re- respond to that? Well, the, 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 the bureaucrats in Canberra, I mean, we could almost hear the laughing uh, from when we were there in Beijing. It was so loud. Um, but it, this was written at the time of change of government. Whitlam uh, was out. I had been appointed by Whitlam, of course, and Fraser had come in. And this uh, dispatch that I wrote was intended for Fraser and his foreign minister, Andrew Peacock. And when it came to uh, Beijing on the state visit in the middle of 1976, I had an opportunity to talk them through mm. some of these arguments. Mm. And they accepted mm-hmm. the arguments. Mm. Uh, so when you could get to them personally, mm. to an extent that one of the arguments in a separate dispatch, I said, we've got to have, we've got to put a huge effort into cultural relations with China. We've got to have that underpinning. Um, otherwise, we won't know anything about China. We'll be ignorant uh, and we won't be able to manage it when it becomes this big giant. Mm. Um, so they went back and within um, months, uh, they took to cabinet a proposal to establish what became the Australia-China Council which has done an enormous amount Mm -hmm. over the 40 years since uh, to stimulate uh, cultural and educational and scientific exchanges. Just just a a further question on that. Did did you detect a time when the attitude of those bureaucrats who, you know, you heard laughing when you were in Beijing, when that changed? Was there a key moment or was was that a gradual... So accretion of uh, of change. Did it? You know, was there a moment where they bureaucrats went, "Oh, that Fitzgerald guy. He actually was onto something." I don't know that they ever said that no, to well, themselves they probably, or to anyone else. They but, probably wouldn't. But, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I think it was more gradual. I think there was a generational thing. I think, you know, going back to the question of white Australia, mm. at the time you still had people in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who are out-and-out racists um, right. and, uh, and who were disparate, also so disparaging of Australian culture uh, they right. believed they themselves. Little, little Brits. Uh, yeah, Little Brits. Yeah, little um, Brits. yeah right. So as that generation passed right, and right. then um, the turmoil of the 70s led into the Hawke government mm. uh, and I think Hawke was inspirational in that uh, regard in getting people out of those mental moulds. Yes, mm. no, of course. Mm. So uh, you're listening to The Middle with me, Peter Frey, and our Walling Sun. Our guest today are Steve Fitzgerald, the first Australian ambassador to China uh, in the 1970s, and Daphne Lo Kelly, the Chinese-Australian community leader. Um, this has been a very interesting history lesson. Um, I'm learning things by the second here. Walling, we've got a cut time for a couple more questions. Yeah, I have a question for Daphne. <clears throat> Daphne, when you were the uh, former um, uh, president of the Chinese Heritage Association, um, you, you, you did a lot of work uh, recording histories of the Chinese migrants. Why do you think it's important to keep telling stories about this uh, uh, history? Because the history of the settlement of the Chinese here in Australia is part of Australian history. Mm. And virtually there's been nothing right recognising that. So it became very important. Um, not uh, There were some academics who were starting to do some research, um, people who were doing either PhDs, mm. right, on certain topics. But what I was also very interested in was that the Chinese Australians themselves 
should be looking at their own histories and recording that and also um, not only for themselves but for wider distribution. So through the uh, Chinese Heritage Association, now that was formed in 2002, but also at the same time there was another organisation uh, formed also by the community mm. called the Chinese Australian Historical mm. Society. Mm. And funnily enough, I'm the current vice president right. of that group. Uh, looks as though they... You're uh, a glutton for punishment. Yes, I, really I, I'd like to say no, but they keep on asking me, right? When, and so what has actually happened... We do regular programs, mm. uh, talks, right? Uh, these could be from community, members of the community who have done research, people who have published books. And one of the other things that we are doing is that we're linking in with other associations. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, we've had uh, talks uh, to do with um, actually the possibly the first Chinese-Australian lawyer a chap called Otto Kon Sing. Now, that particular talk, we linked it in with the Asian Australian Lawyers Association mm -hmm. and uh, a, a barrister by the name of Malcolm Oates actually mm -hmm. had done that research and gave that talk. We also have uh, worked in here with um, the UTS and ACRI Mm. that in their history series, mm -hmm. we have found a number of speakers, right, mm -hmm. for them yeah. uh, there. So this is really important. And I, and I think also not only for the broader Australian Chinese, but a lot of the recent Chinese who've mm -hmm. come here don't know anything about the difficulties that the early Chinese had to go through yeah. in order for them, right, to yes. have a much easier um time now. Talking about difficulties, but that you must uh, also have come across a lot of success, good stories. People have worked really hard and made it. Do yes. you have some examples you can share oh, with yes, us about yes. people doing well? Definitely. Mm. Um, there are a number of... What the early Chinese did was, and, and we mentioned earlier, the how important education was. So we have had in the community... Uh, education was important. And so you have people like uh, Victor Chang, right? Mm. The first oh, yeah, heart, um, heart transplant, mm. right? Mm. Uh, doctor. You have people like John Yu, who was the Australian of the Year in 1996 and has had a number of other, right? And the, Eddie Wu, the math teacher. Yes, and currently Eddie, Eddie Such Wu. Such a cool a guy. Young, mm. yeah. Yes, a young Chinese Australian who is making a name, right, in the education mm. area. Um, there are now... I don't think that in the sporting area, not so many, although one of the things that I do see now is that because um, there are certain areas like gymnastics, water polo and other areas where the there's a number of Chinese coaches or oh, people yes. who are from China who are now working right, you know, in those areas. And myself, I became a teacher, right? <laughs> I thought, well, education is important. And I was actually the first of my family to go to university and um, to get a degree. But then all the younger ones followed. And so, you know, they all became dentists. And so amongst Doctors all my you know, nieces and nephews, I think we've got just about every profession. And I think it's quite interesting because when my I mentioned my father, 
could not pass the English test when he arrived. Well, one of his grandsons topped um, the New Zealand um, exams in English and Latin. Latin. <laughs> That's what, a, what a wonderful uh, positive note. And I think uh, as the middle uh, continues, we're going to hear a lot more of those success stories as well as some of the great contacts we've had from our guests today. Um, that just about wraps it up for this edition. And I'd very much like to thank Steve Fitzgerald. Thank you, Stu. Thank you. And, and Daphne Lowe Kelly for your great insights and wisdom. Thank you, Daphne. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and, I'd, and I'd also like to thank our producer, Amy Ma. And until next time, it's uh, goodbye from me, Peter Frey, and uh, Wanning Sun, my and wonderful yes, co-presenter. See you next time. Yeah. Yes, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>